Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the Keynes versus Hayek debate continues because the world wants it never to end edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Joining me on the show today is Nicholas Wapshot, author of Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics, a book published in 2011 about the intellectual debate between these two economists and how the adherence of their respective principles continue that debate to this very day. Nicholas and I are going to discuss some misunderstood aspects of both thinkers, and most importantly, how the debate has continued to evolve since the publication of the book and why it seems more relevant than ever. Nicholas, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, recently finished the book, kind of kicking myself for not having read it earlier, a truly compulsive read. So I want to start by talking about the personalities, the kind of uh, dispositions of each of these guys uh, before we actually get into their philosophies, if you don't mind. So uh, let's start with Keynes, uh, a famous wit, a charismatic, uh, something of a showman, but also curiously enough, uh, quite practical. Um, and in that sense, he differed from the economists of his day. Yes, it's true that uh, he was really a mathematician rather than an economist, which in a way he's taught us all that uh, economics is mathematics, really. Uh, and in his world, uh, it was based around Cambridge, England, particularly around King's College. Uh, Marshall was the man who had somehow written the definitive account of how an economy worked. Alfred Marshall. Alfred Marshall. It's all in Marshall, they would say to each other, the Keynesians. Uh, but uh, John Maynard Keynes was a, a very original thinker, and he was a very determined sort of character. And he had a very uh, elevated sense of right and wrong, too. And uh, that's what led to his worldwide fame. He was a treasury official, young man, working for the British Treasury, who borrowed all of the money for Britain to wage war against the Germans in the Great War. But not only Britain, but he also borrowed money for the French and the Italians, because the Wall Street guys who lent the money didn't believe the French or the Italians would pay the money back. They were quite right, by the way. Britain mm -hmm. was left holding the, the tab. Same thing happened in the Second World War. Keynes did it all over again. But as a result of that, Keynes was invited to the Treaty of Versailles in order to look over the remunerations arguments, the argument that the Germany caused the war, lost the war, and therefore should pay for all of the damage done to the war. And it had meant effectively breaking the post-war Germany in 1918. And Keynes worked out very quickly that actually if you had a poverty-stricken, large, educated, articulate country in the middle of Europe, ruined by its neighbors and uh, allied against it, that there would be political trouble yeah. in short order. He was absolutely right, of course. But he got in early. He wrote The Economic Consequences of the Peace, where effectively he predicted the rise under Weimar, the Weimar government of uh, of fascism. It right. could have been communism. In fact, Rosa Luxemburg was the first revolutionary and Hitler was the second, perhaps. But uh, that made him worldwide famous for getting things right. 
Yeah, curiously enough, also uh, a hero to a young Hayek, because Keynes also said, as you describe in your book, um, that the punitive reparations against Austria would also be a very big problem. Yes, it wasn't only Germany and the war, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire who were their allies. And uh, Hayek, being an Austrian, lived in Vienna. He fought for the Austro-Hungarians, nearly hanged himself once by jumping out of a uh, an observation balloon uh, and be- forgot to take his headphones off. This is before Wi-Fi headphones, of course. Uh, and uh, But he took a close interest in what Keynes was saying. Keynes's pieces were reproduced and translated across Europe because he was such – first of all, he got, he got right the, the problem of the post-war Germany and Austria. But then Keynes became involved in an anxiety about the fact that the British pound was pegged at far too high a level for comfort for exporters and therefore for jobs. Uh, And so he set about, uh, while the United States was booming in the 20s, the roaring 20s, Britain had mass unemployment and millions of people marched on London to complain. Uh, And uh, Keynes was someone who had a moral conscience and he thought this was unconscionable and he would try to do something about it. And so he set his mind to, how could you fix economics so that instead of having the high highs and the low lows of the business cycle, you could sort of even it out a bit more, and particularly at the bottom of the cycle, how could you get lots of people back to work? And so he said about thinking, how could governments inject money into the system? And uh, this is this pricked up Hayek's ears because Hayek came from a very straightforward school, uh, the Austrian school, which was uh, the principal light actually was a guy called uh, Ludwig von Mises, whose book on socialism, by the way, even today is well worth looking at. He he explained why socialism, by which he really meant sort of state-run economies, communism really, rather than the sort of social democratic tradition that's available in Britain, that uh, socialism would be wrong because planners can never know in a way that the free market can know what people want. And right. therefore, leave the market alone, leave prices alone, don't, don't intervene. And Hayek picked up this charge. And while Keynes was moving towards what would be the general theory in 1936, which would completely change economics for the rest of time, uh, the, this is a rare case of someone attempting to change uh, uh, an intellectual movement before it had even taken place. Right. And worth noting, by the way, uh, that it probably required someone with Keynes's self-confidence in his own intellect. I would say bordering on arrogance, but let's be honest, it probably crossed over into arrogance a few times. It's part of what probably made him um, appealing to a lot of people, that sense of confidence, that sense of self. Um, and uh, what struck me also is that Keynes combines um, – a sense of optimism with a very practical nature, right? Hayek, in many ways, uh, to stick with their personalities for a second, was more of a pessimist, uh, and yet he was also given to utopian thinking. Yes, I think in a way that's this great left-right divide in economics, which persists to this day, is still guided by that sense that on the, let's call them the left, they have an optimistic view of human nature, and they have an optimistic view of how, if only you did A, B, and C, you could make people's lives much better. And the opposite of that is the the conservative side, not the Austrian side necessarily, but there are many conservative economists mm-hmm. who will just say, look, the life is as it is. The uh, the economy 
and the market is like a jungle and you just got to live with it and uh, there's nothing much you can do. Right. There, are, there are unintended consequences if you ever attempt to ameliorate conditions. And uh, so, yeah, the, so they laid down the battle lines in a way. Right. Uh, also, in contrast to Keynes, uh, who could really um, hold an audience spellbound, who wrote beautifully and had such a strong command of the English language, Hayek was different. Uh, English was his second language. It took him a while to learn it, even after he moved to London and worked at the London School of Economics. Uh, he was a little bit more uh, reserved. He was well coiffed. And I think, uh, as you describe in your book, he, he struggled sometimes with the kinds of things that came so naturally to Keynes. Yes, it's true. Keynes was a, Keynes ran sort of three simultaneous lives at least. He was a member of the Bloomsbury Group. Uh, so all of those writers and painters of the Bloomsbury Group, uh, they were allowed to, to live their life of Riley doing as they liked because what, the money. What exactly was the Bloomsbury Group? Bloomsbury Group was a small group of, uh, Cambridge undergraduates and their sisters, uh, who, uh, continued to live with each other afterwards in the squares of Bloomsbury in North London or the northern part of central London. And, uh, they were people like Virginia Woolf. Uh, they're, they're all famous and mm -hmm. good people. Uh, they were split, split pretty equally. They were progressive thinkers, as you might imagine. I mean, the, these are haute bourgeois sort of gentlemen and lady dabblers in painting and right. so on. But, but then actually they turned out to be pretty good about it. And uh, Keynes was really the most practical of those and the only person who actually really worked in the real world. They, they worked in, you know, artistic, uh, a, a utopia of their own. I mean, right. they set up a little commune in uh, East Sussex and they lived there and so did Keynes uh, and so on. I mean, they loved each other. They jumped in out of each other's beds and so on. I mean, it, the whole thing about Keynes, you know, Keynes was gay for at least half his life. He used to keep exercise books full of boys that he'd had and lists of boys that he'd like to have. I mean, you know, there was, he was an interesting fellow. It, halfway through his life, however, he met uh, a dancer in the ballet russe, Lydia Lobakova, and married her, yes. albeit a, a boyish dancer maybe. But uh, so for the second half of his life, at least he was bisexual. Uh, right. So it, it, fascinating in many respects. He, he made an enormous amount of money, Keynes, too. He traded uh, on uh, currencies mostly. Uh, he had the sort of life that you and I would envy, which is to stay in bed till lunchtime with a glass of champagne in one hand and a telephone in the other, asking his brokers to buy this and sell that. He made himself a fortune. He made all the Bloomsbury people enough money. They didn't have to work. Uh, he made his family rich. He made his college, King's College, rich. Uh, he lost a lot of the money in the 1929 crash. He made it all back and more by 1931. He was a very rich person for the whole of his life. Yeah. He was head of uh, insurance companies and so on. I mean, he, this is a brain you want on your board because he was so well connected to everybody and he was so charming and he was so persuasive. I mean, I would say that except for Winston Churchill, who was a really special case, I think that in terms of the reach of the way that the world was changed by one Englishman, it was John Maynard Keynes. He transformed the whole post-Second World War world by the way that he made everybody, including the United States, immensely prosperous. Yeah, and we're, we're going to talk about their economics in just a second. But it strikes me that maybe uh, his participation um, in the Bloomsbury Group, his willingness to uh, lead a lifestyle that was different back then, was maybe 
part of what also led him to make such a radical break with uh, the economic thinking of the time. He essentially invented macroeconomics, the way of looking at the economy from the top down rather than trying to figure out where it was going based on what we know about how individuals function. Keynes made that radical departure. And I wonder uh, if that's all uh, a part of the whole. In other words, I Keynes think, yeah, is I always you're, Yeah, you're onto something. I, I think that his personality was someone who couldn't think within the box. It actually you know, he found it stultifying within the box. And he lived outside the box and he thought outside the box always. And he he could never take the answer no. And he had a dazzling intellect. There's no doubt about it. Kenneth Clark, Lord Clark of civilization, as he became known later on, always said, uh, Maynard never dipped his headlights. I mean, he was someone who could not resist telling you how smart he was. And uh, even Bertrand Russell said, whenever I argued with him, I felt I took my life in my own hands. Right. I mean, this is Bertrand Russell, you know, <laughs> this is the biggest brain on the planet who's still terrified by by Keynes. And uh, yeah, the, that sense of anything can be achieved and that amazing uh, social confidence as well. The fact is that, I mean, prime ministers was, uh, would ask him to lunch, you know, in order to pick his brains. I mean, in those circumstances, actually, he was relatively modest. Other people would have been far bigger headed than that on much, much less, I think. Sure, yeah. Once again, uh, there is a, a striking contrast to Hayek, though I should note that Hayek himself also had a sterling intellect, obviously. But the impression I got from your book is that he was a, a little quieter, that he was more comfortable um, you know, with his analysis, uh, that he built his alliances a little bit more slowly and had a little bit more trouble with it, uh, possibly in part because he wasn't himself an Englishman and he was in England at the time. With, you know, when he went to the London School of Economics, he was trying to, uh, he was trying to help uh, Lionel Robbins, another famous economist at the London School of Economics, essentially build a counterargument to the emergent Keynesian thinking. But he wasn't the type who uh, was lunching with prime ministers, and he wasn't the type uh, who could uh, just walk into a room and have everybody uh, essentially listening on the, you know, listening so attentively to his to everything he said. If anything, sometimes it was all quite, it all came out quite convoluted. You know? Yes, yeah. His English was always poor. Even I mean, he lived a very long time. He lived uh, way up into his eighties, and even then, he had a very, very thick accent. But there's no doubt that that was a great inhibition, and it. Uh, you can speculate on if Keynes had had the German accent and uh, and uh, Hayek was the perfect mellifluent Englishman, whether actually the history of economics might have been slightly different, or at least the, the Keynesian revolution might have been delayed anyway. Right. But yeah, he, I mean, he was a plucky guy in as much as uh, he, he thought himself, he wasn't modest at all about his own achievements. And he thought that he deserved to be in the hottest place when it came to economics. He was a, 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 an economist. But one with enormous ambitions. And so when Lionel Robbins was looking for an Austrian economist in order to counter Keynes, he sent for Hayek. He actually tried von Mises first, but von Mises was far too cantankerous, actually, to lure to London. And too old, too distinguished. Hayek was a young man looking to make his fortune. And the prospect of spending a few rounds in a boxing ring with John Maynard Keynes suited Hayek very much. Right. Uh, those rounds primarily took place uh, in the 1930s and the early 1940s. Um, we're not going to go through the entire history of that, but I thought mm. it might be worth, at least for our listeners, um, establishing what the major points are of both Keynesianism and Hayekian thought. Let's start with Hayek first. Uh, how would you describe the sort of the essential points that people should know about Hayek? Uh, Friedrich Hayek was a, and this is important for a scientist, a pedantic thinker, really. He took one step at a time. He didn't really ever suffer from big visions. 
until after his economics anyway was out of the way when he turned to sort of political political philosophy really that is his claim to fame looking back on it the it, hayek's uh, great works actually had much more to do with uh, personal liberties uh, than they ever did to do with economics. They did do market and prices maybe, but that that was very different from really what led him into the, uh, the battle with Keynes. And his uh, notion was that, and put simply, that if governments were to borrow money or spend money in order to employ people, that it would all go terribly wrong, which he had a very long and convoluted way of describing how it would all, all the money would end up in, in the sand. Actually, it was the opposite of the truth. In fact, if you uh, pump prime or if you uh, add money into an economy deliberately, even if a government goes way into debt at the bottom of a business cycle, there won't be any inflation, which is what Hayek recommended there would be. And in fact, it does put people back to work. As long as you choke off the money at the top of the cycle, which of course, many democratic politicians never got around to doing, so which laid to the really the undermined in a way the, the success of Keynes. But Hayek uh, was, yes, he was always on a micro level, right to the end of his life, he remained on a micro level. Uh, he was uh, not particularly charming. Uh, he was not very eloquent. When he arrived in London for the first of a succession of duels with Keynes, his uh, English was pretty inadequate. Actually, the very first time that he arrived in Britain, he went straight to the Keynesians. Keynes wasn't with them, but he, he addressed a group of Keynesians, and they just didn't know what the hell he was talking about. You know, he <laughs> he drew things all over a, a blackboard, and uh, they didn't understand what it was about until many years later when they tried to deduce what it was that he was going on about. But effectively, he... Uh, he thought that people ought to sort of buy things on the nail. You shouldn't borrow. Uh, well, that, of course, undermines the whole of the history of uh, European business practice uh, and uh, wholly impractical. Right. Uh, the fact is, what Keynes showed was that you could live around the corner. And if the, around the corner was going to be a slightly brighter atmosphere, you could buy your way there. Right. I want to actually sketch out some of uh, Hayek's thinking on economics um, in a little bit more detail because I think it's really interesting. His argument uh, for why a government or a central bank shouldn't interfere in the business cycle uh, went something like this. If you pump money into the economy, you'll end up sending that money into production processes that are no longer worthwhile. And so yes, for a little while, it'll look like you've raised GDP, but all that money is doing is prolonging the existence of uh, the making of products that people either don't want anymore or they already have enough of. And so eventually when you shut off the tap, when you stop sending the money into the economy, the collapse will actually be even greater because you've essentially just prolonged the adjustment period, right? Um, from one industry to another. The other really interesting point about all this is that Hayek believes so powerfully in the importance of the information conveyed by prices, right? So if I buy something and a lot of people buy something, its price goes up. If people stop buying it, the price goes down. And if you interfere in the business cycle, you're going to alter the information that's given off by uh, this pricing mechanism. And then you're not going to know which parts of the economy really are strong and which are, uh, and that also uh, can be damaging and can prolong uh, the eventual collapse. That's right. You, you would end up with a lot of redundant factories, a lot of unbought goods and so on uh, after a while when the government stopped um, pumping cash into the economy. Of course, what Keynes would counter to that, and it turned out to be the case, mm -hmm. is that uh, if you held up the bottom of a slump, 
not only you, you kept people employed, so instead of having to compensate them for doing nothing, you they got they paid their own way, but you could actually still grow an economy. And things actually didn't end up uh, in the wrong place. Uh, the, the fact is a, a, a growing economy a, a, on a rising trend would start to use all of those bits and pieces that Hayek thought would be wasted, empty factories and so on. They, they, that was not the case, and it turned out to be not the case. Uh, so he was sort of barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't stopped a small number of a- academics, uh, particularly in the United States, not in very many places. You can find them in George Mason University. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find them uh, in maybe two other places. I think that uh, John Taylor would count himself a Hayekian, who's a professor of economics at Stanford, for instance. But it really is a um, a lost right. cause now. Okay. Uh, the other part of Hayek that you mentioned earlier, um, the importance of his contributions in terms of political philosophy, but which also are related to his thinking on economics, obviously. Uh, that was sort of the foundation for his thinking. Uh, and again, the importance of prices, the division of knowledge, which is sort of a, an analogous idea to the division of labor, the communicated information that you get from uh, prices. It's interesting that his central idea here was that it relates to a fundamental freedom, right? That people participated in society partly by showing their preferences, and you wouldn't know their preferences except through this pricing mechanism. Yes, he thought that the the price told you everything you needed to know. It was like, a, I don't know, a speedometer in a car or something. Mm-hmm. You, you could see exactly where things were. It, it, you know, of course, in a way, in, in in a place without rationing, that would be the case. And it's interesting, and when World War II arrived, Hayek, notwithstanding the fact he was an Austrian, was, had nothing ever to do with Nazism uh, and remained in London and uh, because of his Austrian connections, however, wasn't used properly. But uh, when it came to rationing the rare goods that were being shipped over from the United States in order to feed the British population, the only uh, country left outside of the Axis uh, after Hitler had invaded France and Spain and Italy and so on are already uh, part of the axis anyway. How should I say it? It, it sort of brought, brought an end to, to, to that line of thinking, I think, that mm-hmm. that, that, that somehow the, the, the price was the only thing. Right. The other part of his thinking and emphasized most of all uh, in Road to Serfdom and then later in another book called The Constitution of Liberty mm-hmm. – that a little bit of government intervention uh, inevitably led to more government intervention until eventually you got to a totalitarian state. And so he therefore favored the privatization of almost everything, Um, education, uh, utilities, telecommunications, not necessarily healthcare or housing, right? So he actually did advocate some forms of social insurance. But with everything else, he thought the government should stay out of it and that if it got involved, then there, then its involvement would only get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, that's true. And the uh, it's it's probably important to say that that's slightly different from straight laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. So Ayn Rand was the great laissez-fairist who hated Hayek because Hayek thought there should be regulations and rules within which a market should operate freely and fairly, uh, rather like the rule Warren, of law. Yes, yeah, but 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 he thought it pertinent for democratic institutions to insist, for instance, there should not be monopolies in an industry. And uh, he would go along with uh, th- those sorts of regulations. Ayn Rand thought that there should be no regulations of any sort. And I mean, when to the extent that would spit at him at parties? I mean, the, the Ayn Rand-Hayek uh, division was 
pretty profound. It remains pretty profound to this day. Wasn't part of that uh, controversy also that she believed in the kind of great man theory, whereas Hayek thought, well, it's not always clear which ideas are going to work and which not to work. And that's the justification for a free market is to let them all compete and then society will decide. Whereas Ayn Rand thought, well, no, uh, we should be essentially almost worshipping the titans of industry because they're the ones with the idea and they're the ones that move everything. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, so Ayn Rand in that sense was an elitist and uh, Hayek was a Democrat. I mean, he believed that the price mechanism was the easiest and best way of understanding what people's desires were. Because even if they came to a price which was slightly more expensive than they wanted and the person, the other person got slightly less than they wanted, whatever, uh, there was some sort of justice in it. At least there were two people uh, sharing the bargain and therefore it's up to individuals. To, so he glorified individuals and made the whole market process an, an essential uh, element of what a democracy should be. So to have a democracy at all, uh, you needed a free market or more or less free market. It's true. He did say that there, which is most people miss out, the very important things that Hayek said, that all people within a nation should be protected in terms of health uh, and they should be looked after in a benign uh, way as much as possible by the state. But the rest should uh, let it rip. And he went, uh, as his life went on, of course. He did, did, Hayek's an example of one of those people who had a small but amazingly important truth that he just kept digging down and down and down. Right. So the longer he lived his life, the more extravagant he was on this. So he came to the conclusion in the end that even governments of cities should be privatized. So that if you didn't like living in New York because it wasn't comfortable for you, you just hiked a ride and went to Chicago and saw whether that was better. But they would be privately run, the privately right. run city. And he also saw no borders. This, of course, it infuriates many conservatives today. It was Hayek as a sort of patron saint of conservatives. But he thought that, uh, that there should be genuinely a free market in labor. And that is, you know, you didn't pr patrol the Mexican border like Mr. Trump says or build a wall mm -hmm. to let them all in. You know, the market will sort that out. If there are too many people then they'll go away. They'll go and find a job somewhere else if the system can't find, find them. And that's, that sort of purity of thought about the, the justice of the market, I think, is his greatest triumph. Though the book that everybody knows him for, which uh, is The Road to Serfdom, was a tract, a short tract, which is much misunderstood. It was, it was written really in order to uh, remind people. It was written in wartime, published in 1944, and it was in Britain. And it was that's when the war was more or less won. They were they were going to mop up uh, the rest of Nazism and put Europe back on its feet. And he just said, just be a bit careful, because the war and a centralized command economy, which ran the British war effort and the American war effort, has proved to be so efficient and so happy that actually there'll be a lot of politicians having got this control who won't want to let go of it. And he was onto something plainly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he wanted as fast as possible to return to the free market. There were a lot of people in 1945, as the war was coming to its end, thinking, my goodness, we might just return to the slump of the 1930s. We ought to be careful of the way this operates. But he certainly put out a strong signal. And this is, I think it's his strongest book, actually. Although Americans have had a misunderstanding about it because uh, it was sold uh, to Reader's Digest, who produced, it was already a pretty slim book, by the way. They sort of cut it by another half. And there are all sorts of rather key elements to it, including the the need for national health service, for instance, socialized medicine, as we would call it today, that he recommended, uh, that uh, 
again, conservatives would recoil in horror if they thought their patron saint, Friedrich Hayek, could ever recommend a such thing, but he did. One other misunderstanding about Hayek, by the way, uh, he explicitly identified himself as not a conservative. He identified himself uh, as a liberal in the classical sense, uh, not in the American sense of, uh, I guess, more left or left of center or uh, progressive thinking, but as a true liberal in the sense that he was open to the future playing out however it was meant to play out when you leave people alone, he wasn't trying to hold fast to anything in particular, right? Yes, absolutely. And the and he he was he was onto something, by the way. I mean, there's no doubt that Hayek. Uh, I, I'm very grateful that Hayek existed in order to sort of refresh. It would have been far too easy to have fallen in with a, a chummy. Uh, orthodoxy where big business and government sort of cozy up together and uh, run the place like a sort of fascist state, right. which is what happened in Mussolini's Italy, for instance. But, but you know, for 20 years, well, more than that, 25 years before fascism was defeated in Italy. And it sort of works, but at the same time, you miss out on many of the essential freedoms that uh, that Hayek was interested in, which is the ability to more or less buy what you like at the price which suited you, not the one dictated by some central command. Yeah, let's switch to Keynes for a second, um, mm. because there are quite a few misunderstandings about him as well, mm. um, including, I think, by a lot of uh, a lot of his adherents now, or people who think that they're adherents of Keynesianism. Keynes wasn't a socialist or anything close to it. In fact, he mocked Marxism, said it was all quite dull, and he has this great line. I'm going to quote it here. The important thing for government is not to do things which individuals are doing already, and to do them a little better or a little worse, but to do those things which at present are not done at all. Keynes also believed in some limits to government authority and government intervention, but what he wanted was for the government to do the things that people weren't already doing, as he said, and that includes business cycle management, that yeah. when the business cycle was in a funk, the private sector wasn't going to get out of it on its own, that that was a place where, uh, where the government or the central bank or the relevant authority could play a role. Yeah, Keynes was worried. Uh, he was driven by the 1920s in Britain, where there was mass unemployment in a way there wasn't in the United States. 1920s in America was the roaring 20s. Everybody was booming like crazy, at least until the crash of 29. In Britain, because the price of the pound had been set too high, according to Keynes, it meant that there were there was vast structural unemployment. And it wasn't because these people were lazy. It wasn't because they weren't trained to do jobs. It was because there were no jobs. The size of the industry was too small. And uh, the competition Competition from other countries with a high pound meant that some goods could not sell abroad, and other goods were very cheap to import. So, uh, yeah, he he came to the conclusion that actually you should interfere with the market. There, I mean, individuals. I think it actually had great sympathy in many respects, and always said of Hayek, you know, I know there's something in there that's important. I can't quite work out what it is, uh, and I don't think he, he went to his grave not knowing quite what it was. I think, but the but his sense was that. Uh, it was possible to manipulate an economy so you didn't have the gross misery of mass unemployment. After all, mass unemployment had led to Nazism. You know, it was the, it was the threat of, uh, of just never, a, a country never again making its way in the world that allowed first Rosa Luxemburg and her communists, but then uh, Hitler and his fascists, his uh, Nazis. Right. In a way, he over. was trying to preserve uh, the strengths of the system that already existed. Yeah. Uh, you could say that at the time, 
he could be labeled a small C conservative. Yeah, he was actually, and this is confusing, but in British terms, he was a liberal, <laughs> right. uh, which is somewhat liberal, but when it comes to <laughs> economics, not so much. Uh, no, he thought that intervention was essential. And uh, what's more, having made it in the general theory, there's nothing like the immodesty of Keynes for calling his central theory the general theory, as if there could be no other. He'd said, you should borrow at the bottom of a business cycle, governments should borrow, and uh, they should spend on whatever's necessary. Uh, you know, he, he made fun of himself. Obviously, he thought it should go into productive things. But if he said, look, if you filled old bottles full of pound notes, and you dug a hole, paid people to dig a hole and put the bottles in, then you paid them to fill up the hole. And then other people came along and got them to dig out the bottles and keep the pan notes, that would be worthwhile doing in itself because it would give all those people something to do and it would give them a job. Right. In very simple terms, a key to this way of thinking was uh, the multiplier effect, which was his idea, but which was mathematized later by one of his students. And then obviously, which has been, uh, which has led to a uh, controversy that still exists today about just how big the multiplier effect is. But in simple terms, uh, essentially, it's that when you have idle resources, either people out of work or equipment that's not being used or factories that are empty, and you spend money on them, right, that essentially what's going to happen uh, is that $1 spent, say, paying somebody to go back to work uh, is going to give you more of a boost than just that dollar's worth that you're paying that person. He didn't have uh, an income before. And then that person is going to spend sure. money on his household items. And then that money is going to be spent by the people who made those household items. Uh, and then they spend it on something else. And so you might actually might get three or $4 of growth for each dollar that you spend. That's a very simplified example. Yeah. It doesn't work exactly like that, but that's the basic idea. Absolutely, exactly. If you buy a joint meat from the butcher and the butcher buys a candle from the candle maker and the candle maker buys something from the grocer and the grocer and on it goes down. So every dollar or every pound actually goes much further than a single pound. So if you borrow that, particularly at the bottom of a business cycle where interest rates are on zero or near approaching zero, uh, then as long as you started paying off the debt when the economy started to pick up, you could do it without inflation. Uh, which was the important thing. And that was the thing which eventually went, went wrong with Keynesianism because everybody thought you could spend as, borrow and spend as much money as you liked without any uh, view of the business cycle. Uh, there are other things too, though, that, uh, that Keynes can claim, even though now conservatives claim uh, that their own really. Cutting taxes, for instance. Hugely popular in, in all conservative parties around the world. Uh, you know, in the new Trump regime and so on, you know, cut taxes. Well, Keynes said that the easiest way actually is to get money into people's pockets is just cut taxes. Government can borrow uh, as much as it likes, uh, with impunity, by the way. In a sovereign state, a government can borrow and borrow and borrow. And the combination of government uh, spending on important things like infrastructure, new roads, new railways, new public housing, whatever it was, things that the country needs, and that employs people and uh, gets the economy moving, but also at the same time, cut people's taxes so they go out and spend. Hoarding money was, is of no use to an economy, he, uh, he argued. And uh, he was a great propagandist. He, he would write this in the London Times, but he would write this in the New York Times, and he would write this in the London Daily Mail. And he would write this in the London Daily Mirror. Up and down uh, the social scale, he 
tried to he, he went on the road and tried to persuade people that what sounded silly, which is that when you're absolutely broke, that's the time to borrow an enormous amount of money, was counterintuitive but amazingly productive. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's the basis of Keynesian economics. And it, uh, it, that is, by the way, that's what we can now call economics. And uh, what uh, Hayek talks about as economics really isn't economics anymore, which is why it's barely taught anymore. Because it, if you get an, an economics degree in Hayekian economics, you can barely get employed by anybody. Mm-hmm. You certainly got can't get employed by Wall Street. Yeah, uh, it's worth, by the way, uh, adding one thing about Keynesian economics and what you just said, uh, which is the relationship between savings and investment. The thinking before was that there is no difference between those two things. So if I make a dollar of income from my job and I choose not to spend it on a typical consumer product uh, and instead I save it, I'm probably going to save it either by depositing that dollar in the bank, which then lends it out to somebody else to make things, or maybe I'll buy shares in a company and then that company makes things or whatever, right? And so in that sense, savings and investment would be exactly the same. Keynes's insight was that actually in a downturn, if I saved the money, I might not necessarily do anything with it. I might just save it because I have what he called a liquidity preference, right? Yeah. And that's what ends up leading to a prolonged slump is if everybody does it at the same time, not just all people, but all companies, banks all end up saving their money. They have a liquidity preference. Uh, and instead, what you end up with is a situation where interest rates plunge, but it doesn't lead to more economic activity, which is where Keynes's ideas come in, which is that the government needs to be the one to spend the money. Yes, absolutely. And the individuals, when they get some money, they should spend it too, by the way. Uh, so spend, spend, spend is what he said, you know, and uh, he, he would go, he would go on the road. I mean, he would actually lobby for this. He would p- try to persuade people that's the way forward. There's a multiplier too, you know, that uh, for every dollar you spend, it's worth far more than dollars, as I was trying to explain with the candle maker and so on. I mean, the fact is that $1 goes an amazingly long way because people keep passing it on. What you don't want is to stuff it under the bed. And it's counterintuitive, and it's very difficult if you have a theory which is counterintuitive, because people who don't have too much of an imagination never quite get it. And there's quite a lot of Austrian economists today who still don't get, I think, uh, what Keynes is uh, banging on about or banged on about all those years ago. Uh, but the, the fact is it works, and uh, it did work, and uh, it worked amazingly well until the mid-1970s. And when it didn't work, it wasn't because of Keynes's error. It was because of the people who called themselves Keynes, who uh, Keynesians, who uh, then sort of misapplied it. They, uh, they, they, effectively, the business cycle and the electoral cycle got out of sync. And if somebody's about to lose an election and all they have to do is to borrow an enormous m- amount of money at the top of a business cycle, which is the last time where you should borrow it, then – you're going to go wrong. And they, I'm well, afraid specifically, that, you're going to end up with very high inflation. Absolutely. Right. And inflation, of course, undermines right. absolutely everything. And now Hayek, of course, he grew up in Austria in the 1920s. And inflation was the thing which was the great curse of both Germany and Austria. And as far as he was concerned, led to fascism. It led to totalitarian rule. When there's, when you have to take your wages home in a, uh, in a large sack instead of in a, a wallet, you know, and what was happening. He, he said that in Vienna, you could listen outside of the windows, you could hear the printing presses, printing money, which of course was valueless by the time it got to the streets the next day. So he was worried more about inflation and Keynes was much more worried about unemployment. Right. Curiously enough, neither of them, neither Keynes nor Hayek, uh, had a very strong belief in the potency of monetary policy Yet it was later on another economist, uh, Milton Friedman, who essentially combined 
Keynesian economics with Hayekian political thinking into what I guess a lot of economists ended up referring to as neo-Keynesianism, where the business cycle was still managed using the principles of demand management that Keynes came up with, but via monetary policy and the impact on either the money supply or via interest rate management. That's true up to a point. The fact is that everybody used to say everything is in Marshall, who was the great thinker before Keynes. turns out there's everything in Keynes too. Monetarism was anticipated by Keynes, and he wrote two books on monetarism, and a tract on monetary reform was considered by Milton Friedman to be his Bible. And everything that's in Friedman is actually in Keynes, if you like. And uh, Hayek was always irritated when people put Friedman and Hayek together, opposed to Keynes. He said there are far more in common between Milton Friedman and Maynard Keynes than either of them is is to me. There's just a yawning gap. And the fact is that in many ways, uh, Milton Friedman was a Keynesian. Uh, and you can, you can see the argument from a pure purist's point of view. Uh, and there's no doubt that, however, that Milton Friedman took the broader message that uh, Hayek was uh, preaching, which actually I think is his great contribution to society uh, and, and general philosophical, political philosophical thought, actually, which is that big government in itself uh, has is problematic. And uh, it uh, it will uh, – if you take everything out of the hands of individuals and you plan a society, you're never going to get it right because however smart the planners are, they're not half as good at knowing what they want than the regular man in the street who knows what he wants. It might be not be what an elite prefers the people to have, but the people know what they like. And I think that's his great contribution. Political freedom too was indivisible from economic freedom. And uh, of course, he was in 1944 in the road to serfdom. He was anxious about not uh, fascism, which was coming to its end. He was anxious that there would be a sort of form of mild communism which would take over. After all, uh, both in uh, Britain and in the United States, there had been rationing of various things, the government taking command of the economy. In Britain, they directly nationalized industries uh, in, in the communist way. In, in the United States, FDR was a little more subtle about it. But at the same time, General Motors totally turned over to making tanks rather than making cars and so on. It, it had become a national economy and a, a command economy. It came out of D.C. And Hayek was just worried that if that went on forever um, – in the post-war world, that people would lose their liberties. And, uh, well, he, he was in the wilderness for a good part of 30 years after the war. Yeah. And the person who actually put him back on the pedestal uh, was Milton Friedman more than anything else. Uh, they went to a succession of meetings in Switzerland, uh, in Mont Pelerin, yeah. and there a bunch of maverick conservatives, liberals, by which I mean economic liberals, uh, you know, some do-gooders, some no-gooders, some hopeless, you know, but they all were brought together. Hayek, an amazing organizer, brought all these thinkers together and said in 1945, well, we're screwed. The fact is that the right, the conservatives have lost uh, the economy uh, Keynes has uh, given them a new way forward and make everybody very prosperous. But there will come a time when they'll need us and we're going to have to. It might take decades, which indeed it is. But we ought to meet every year at Mont Pelerin or another place. We'll call it the Mont Pelerin Society and we will try to work out whether there's a way back and whether we can actually put the Keynesian genie back in the bottle. Well, he never quite managed to do that. But he did, through Friedman anyway, introduce a theory which was uh, – it was true to some spirits of uh, Hayek in as much as it was a small government. Government in itself was a mess. Anything that intervened in the market was a mess and likely to 
to lead to nonsensical decisions, yeah. uh, which is the basis of Hayek's uh, economics. In, in politics, it works a bit closer. And also Milton Friedman was a great salesman. Hayek wasn't. One of the great divisions, of course, between uh, the comparing and contrasting Hayek and Keynes is that Keynes was always an immensely rich man. He was capable of making money. He was a, he played the market. Poor Friedrich Hayek, who was the great expert on the market, and, you know, St. Friedrich is the patron saint of the free market, but actually he lived in penury most of his life. A lot of it was to do with abandoning his, like, never divorce. That's a, you know, a, a good piece of advice to anyone. Never divorce anyone. It'll cost you a lot of money. He, he left on the day after Christmas Day, his wife and three children in order to go to an old girlfriend. I mean, not a very pleasant thing to do. He went to, work in uh, the United States briefly in order to be able to get a quickie divorce from his first wife. But I think that told uh, that played uh, badly against him. But the road to serfdom actually was his invitation to to be as rich as Croesus. The, uh, the American u- universities wanted him to come and live among them and to lecture among them. And the, the American businessmen had found someone who articulated just what they thought. They provided an intellectual gloss to what their instincts were about having government messing around and regulating the market, which they could do with that. And in fact, my next book is about uh, the second part of this argument in which uh, Milton Friedman continues to wage this sort of Keynes-Hayek war against uh, Paul Samuelson, who was the great Keynesian, who wrote the great economics, Keynesian economics textbook. Sure. Still still available today. The first version of which, uh, according to your book, doesn't even include classical economics. It includes essentially socialism on the one hand or Keynesianism on the other. Absolutely. Completely forgotten. And uh, it's true that Hayek was completely forgotten as an individual until... Well, he was sort of rediscovered by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who were great revivers of market economics in the first place, and they're great conservatives. And they, they also had a sort of passion for um, learning. It just come as surprises to uh, Americans because uh, Ronald Reagan has been dismissed as a total doofus. But actually, he had a degree in economics. Of course, it was pre-Keynesian economics. But he had an insatiable appetite for improving himself. Mm-hmm. And because he was also frightened of flying, he took trains everywhere and he was in, uh, employed to go and... Uh, he used them to read. He used them, absolutely. And he learned a lot and he, he read a lot of Hayek and... Uh, so when he and Margaret Thatcher came in the end of the 70s to meet each other, they uh, they found that they had in common their excitement and joy at the works of uh, Friedrich Hayek and the lessons learned from it. So actually, Hayek did come back. He bounced back, but it was mostly to do with Milton Friedman's agitation. As, as we, I mean, Ayn Rand hated Hayek, and Hayek was slightly suspicious of Friedman. I mean, this is what happens in uh, great right. political the, movements. The you know. intra-libertarian squabbles uh, are themselves the, the stuff of, of used many, to, many books. Ayn Rand used to spit at Hayek. <laughs> Can you imagine? Right. Spit at him at parties. I mean, he, uh, not a nice person. From, from what <laughs> I know of Ayn Rand uh, and her character, uh, I'm actually not at all surprised to learn that. One final point before we get mm. to the present day. You mentioned Ronald Reagan uh, and Margaret Thatcher. They were inspired by Hayek. Uh, they both took fairly substantial deregulatory measures uh, in certain industries. But Hayek himself was quite disappointed by how little they did, by how little they went in the direction of what he would have liked. Uh, and there's an interesting point near the end of your book uh, where you describe Hayek's, uh, I guess what you would call them, anti-democratic ideas, which is to say that he wanted a genuinely privatized society with only minimal exceptions. Um, and he worried that 
representative democracy invariably led to bigger and bigger government unless it was checked. Um, and he didn't think that it was checked nearly enough by Thatcher or Reagan. That's true. Uh, even though Thatcher and Reagan both lasted a long time. Reagan had eight years and Thatcher had nearly 13 years. And what's more, they were the, the years overlapped. So uh, these are two powerful economies that uh, – and there's no doubt that they introduced – to the world, but particularly to Eastern European nations, which were coming out of communism, the virtues of the, the free market. And so actually, maybe they spent more of their time freeing up people who'd lived in chattels under Stalin's regime since 1945. Maybe they were helping them out when somebody like Hayek would have preferred that they'd concentrated on turning all of their own nations into proper free market. I, I mentioned the, the fact that he talk, talked about city-states, which would be privately owned uh, uh, and would compete for labor. So, you know, New York would run it as it wants. And if you didn't, weren't very happy there, you didn't have any rights as a citizen of the United States or as New York, but you had the, a right to go and live in another American city where another American corporation would Chicago PLC or something would be running itself. Uh, it's, uh, it, I mean, it is a very brave new world. But the, I think that one of the important things about Hayek is that he never pretended to be fond of government of any sort. Uh, small government too, he hated. Whereas actually Milton Friedman did sort of adjust himself to small government. He thought there should be a government of some sort anyway. And Hayek warned Friedman against getting involved with politicians. You know, they'll only let you down. They'll disappoint you and they'll never do what you're recommending to them. And that I think is true. And certainly in the history of uh, Milton Friedman's advice to all sorts of people from Barry Goldwater, Richard Nixon, uh, the Chilean government under uh, Allende and so on. I mean, you know, the, he, he'd said to Friedman, don't trust these polls because they're going to let you down. And, they, and Hayek was in, on another plane, really. He, he was inventing. Uh, a utopia, or some would say a dystopia, uh, which was an ideal world that people could look towards. When he founded the Mont Pelerin Society in 1945, what he said to all of this ragbag of the conservatives and uh, economic liberals together was, the left has sort of cornered the market in idealism and made us all think along their lines. We have to match what they are doing. They've got the view of a, a wonderful society where people don't work very much anymore because everything is taken care of and everybody lives well and they live long and they play games all day and everything else. We don't have anything on the right for that. We're because we're sort of pessimistic about the way things will turn out and we make we don't make promises. But what we ought to do is to build a sort of ideology which people can get inspired by. And there's no doubt that the Hayek's uh, you know, something like Newt Gingrich could not have operated without having read Hayek. Now, it's true to say that every conservative politician will rattle off uh, Hayek and Rand and all sorts of people, even though anyone who's ever read these uh, thinkers knows full well you can't actually keep them all in one brain. You know, you can't be a Hayekian and a Randian. Right. So, or even a Friedmanite and a Hayekian in that sense. So you've got to pick one. So when you hear somebody like Paul Ryan rattling off all of the books that he's that has inspired him, you know full well that he just read the, the, the flyleaf and just, uh, you know, he didn't, <laughs> or maybe he read them but didn't get to grips with them properly. Okay, uh, let's uh, move ahead to the present day. Uh, the post-war era was the era of Keynes. The era since the 1980s, roughly late 1970s maybe, uh, was the era of Hayek. By the middle of the 2000s, it had become somewhat embarrassing for an economist to self-identify as a Keynesian. But 
Then we get the financial crisis. We get the very deep recession uh, in the United States. We get a series, an almost endless series of crises, sovereign debt crises, banking crises in Europe, extremely slow growth there. Um, you have uh, Japan still uh, with very sluggish growth that has lasted for a very long time. And suddenly it seems like Keynes is ascendant. At the time you published the book in 2011, uh, the debate was still very much raging. The Keynesians were saying, no, no, Keynesianism is what we need right now. Uh, the response just wasn't robust enough. Hayekians, um, or maybe Friedmanites, however you want to identify them, saying, no, no, we told you it wouldn't work, right? Let's go back to the free market. In the time since the book was published, though, it kind of seems to me like Keynesian thinking is once again ascendant. You have the IMF doing essentially a volte-face on the usefulness of austerity. Same thing more recently from the OECD. You have the US now nearing something like full employment. Um, we might not be there yet, and yet all the talk uh, is of a possible fiscal stimulus next year uh, and all the complications that that would bring. What's your assessment uh, in light of uh, all the research you did for this book uh, of what's happened in the last roughly half decade since you finished it? Uh, well, it's, you're absolutely right. There was a revival in Keynesianism uh, after the 2007, 8, 9 events when the market froze effectively. Uh, and it was interesting. This is under George W. Bush, a Republican. He didn't reach for his uh, Hayek, he reached for his canes and, yeah. uh, and they came up with a plan. It's always called a trillion dollar so, uh, stimulus, but it's actually 800 million, I think. Under and Obama. Yeah. Under, well, Later it, under well, Obama. It, well, Obama inherited it uh, from uh, George W. Bush. George, George W. Oh. Bush's treasury team under Paulson actually made out the plan. And uh, one of the first conversations that George W. had with Obama was, hey, you know, we're in a fix. This is the way to get out of it. You know, our guys know about this stuff because they're good on money. Uh, anyway, he, yeah, he put it into effect. The argument in places like the Wall Street Journal, who of course are more Hayekian than Keynesian, uh, was this stimulus isn't working. But there's no doubt that the stimulus actually did prevent us going off a cliff. Uh, the whole of the Western world could have gone off a cliff and we would have been back in something like 1929. In fact, Ben Bernanke, uh, who uh, was the chair of the Federal Reserve at the time, said, consequently, uh, having looked at the figures, that actually the scale of the disaster was even worse than the 29 crash and, right. uh, and the subsequent well, We should probably also acknowledge the response of the Fed in combination with the fiscal packages uh, passed first, a smaller one under George W. Bush, and then mm -hmm. the larger 800-something billion one passed under Obama. Yeah, this is both Friedmanite and uh, Keynesian, yes. the quantity of easing in that sense. And therefore, I suppose Hayek was quite right. They, they both would have come to that conclusion. He would never have done it. You make money as cheap as possible. What Hayek would say is, oh, no, you're going to get inflation. In fact, if you look through, uh, you know, the old copies of the Wall Street Journal between 2008 and 2012, you'll find every day almost somebody saying, we're going to have inflation, we're going to have inflation. But it was it never happened uh, because the growth was never that big in that was the opposite of what happened in uh, in the uh, in Europe. In Europe, and particularly in Britain, uh, their response was to uh, initially having borrowed a lot of money. It was to start paying down the debt. This is about as un-Keynesian as you can get. What Keynes said at the bottom of the business cycle, when people are being thrown out of work, that's when governments have to borrow, and that's when governments have to cut taxes, and that's the way that you get money back into the economy. And because of the multiplier effect, that so the butcher pays the baker who pays the candlestick maker and so on, all the money uh, will be worth far more, more than it is. It was actually the uh, 
Larry Summers, who fixed on the 800 million stimulus billion. for, sorry, billion for, for I'm sorry, for, for Obama, uh, because he thought, and probably quite rightly, that even a, 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 in those days, uh, briefly for two years, there was a, uh, a Congress in both houses, which are democratic, but even the Democrats wouldn't swallow a trillion dollar stimulus. And that's where we've now reached, by the way. So we've been rumbling along. It's that, yes, everybody's slowly been put back to work, but a lot of people have fallen out of the uh, workforce altogether. And, uh, what Donald Trump is now suggesting, though he hasn't put very much flesh on these bones, is that the federal government ought to blow a trillion dollars, that's even more than Obama spent, on trying to get this economy back into high gear. And it'll be very interesting to see whether, well, first of all, how, he, how he's going to do it. Is this going to come from government borrowing, government spending? Is this going to do from tax breaks for construction businesses, which he seems, this seems to be another element of it? He's got, seems to have a number of different ideas. What Mr. Mnuchin is going to make of this, uh, the new <laughs> Treasury Secretary, I don't know, because he's a Democrat, as we know. So maybe he's the best person to do such a thing. Yeah, uh, I guess there, there's also two more salient points here. Two things happening now that we don't, we can't really anticipate the outcome of. Um, first, it seems like monetary policy is also increasingly embracing uh, Keynesian thinking. And here's the example I would give. Uh, Janet Yellen most recently gave a speech in which she said that economists are now reassessing whether or not it's a good idea to allow an economy to run hot for a little while after a very deep downturn. And what she meant by running hot is inflation above the Fed's usual target of 2% in order to undo some of the devastating effects. Uh, these effects are sometimes called hysteresis effects. And what it means simply is that if people are out of work for a while, uh, it means that they lose their skills, they lose their networks, and letting an economy run hot allows those people to find work, to reestablish their skills. And it also uh, means that employment is available for them if they have already left the labor force. Uh, and it also means that companies were, are incentivized essentially to uh, reinvest in equipment because they know that the Federal Reserve isn't going to slow down uh, a strengthening economy as quickly as they would have thought, right? This is an interesting idea because it essentially means that supply, the potential supply of the economy, the potential growth rate of the economy is not something that is fixed, which is an idea that economists thought about for a long time. Now, it might in fact be something that is vulnerable to the swings in the business cycle. Uh, I suspect that Keynes would have loved uh, all the research and all the reintroduction, the reinvigoration of this idea uh, that's happening right now. Yeah, I, yes. I mean, had he lived that long, he died very young. Uh, and uh, it, it, one of the great what ifs is uh, if Keynes had known what the Keynesians were up to in the first place, uh, whether he wouldn't have intervened in order to ensure that there was no inflation, in which case we would have run on a Keynesian managed economy right through the 70s and 80s when it ran into the ground. The whole question of the money supply is uh, is fascinating because uh, Milton Friedman came to the conclusion and he arbitrarily almost fixed on the 2% of saying, the important thing is that it doesn't wobble around too much. Uh, that will keep inflation in its uh, in, in, within manageable yeah. uh, in a range, in a, in a range. If you if you aim for about two percent, and that's really what the Federal Reserve has been trying to do for a very long time, except since two thousand and seven, when it's put interest rates absolutely on the floor, and still you can't give the money away. Uh, so even when money costs nothing, in fact, it costs in some parts of the world, it costs money in order to lodge money with a bank. You have to pay them interest. So 
Whereas Milton Freeman was absolutely correct about the money supply and it had got out of control. It was actually, by the way, a Democrat appointed by Jimmy Carter. You would never guess this by the way that most people talk about those uh, Jimmy Carter. But actually, he did the right thing. He appointed Volcker, a lifelong Democrat, still alive, by the way, going strong, about six foot eight. A recent guest on this very podcast. Yes, they are. Great, great man. He, he deliberately, uh, under, under Reagan, but uh, he'd been appointed by Carter and had already set on it. He deliberately, what we've now called rebooted the economy. He actually turned it all off and turned it all on again and kept a very tight uh, control over money in order to keep uh, inflation at 2%. But yeah, we're, we're in a sort of a new world now. And I think that any government uh, is going to use whatever tricks it can. And uh, because ideology has turned out to be uh, inadequate, or, or this, uh, the, the adherence to a strict dogma has proven to be inadequate. And I think that there's no doubt that had Obama had a, a house which was democratic, then he would have had a stimulus, uh, wouldn't have been a trillion dollars, but it, there would have been a stillion, there would have been a regular stimulus she, over the she, course of his know, eight years. By the years. way, he, he did have uh, a democratic house. Two years, though. Yeah. He had, yeah. And the most important Oh, you thing, mean later on? You mean yeah, later la- on. Yeah, yeah, right. he had six years where... Uh, which, which is why it's, yes, a, it's a, it's a, it's a live question actually about whether Trump will be allowed to do what he considers himself to have a mandate to do, which is to by building uh, all, rebuilding the broken bridges by turning the airports into something that you don't would recognize. I mean, the rest of the world has first class, wonderful airports. If Americans have never been abroad lately, go abroad and have a look and see the way that they arrive in a country. Fantastic airports. Here, you come into LaGuardia or JFK or Reagan National Airport. It's a disgrace. All of these things need improving. So there's, it's not as if it's uh, just money to be hosed down the drain. And all of these renovations will employ people and they will employ shopkeepers and the shopkeepers will employ all, you know, this is the old multiplier effect. So it, it Keynes is alive and well. Uh, they've tried to bury him a number of times, but, uh, I'm rather glad that they haven't because it's a very sophisticated way of looking at an economy, certainly in the middle of a, a horrible downturn. Uh, private people should uh, pay off their credit card debt and minimize their mortgage and everything else. But the kitchen table is not the same as a national economy. As Keynes uh, pointed out, if everybody holds, holds hands and jumps off the cliff t- together, there's no floor. It, mm. it, it, you know, you don't splat. It just goes on forever. So as long as he, he invented the notion of sort of paper gold so that every country should be given notional extra money. Gold being a totally valueless thing apart from filling teeth uh, just piles up in Fort Knox, which is not not a useful use of gold at all. But that was the sort of imaginative use that uh, he got to. And I think that if you look at the state of Europe today politically and uh, the state of the United States too, uh, a little more uh, generosity with uh, economic policy would help. In the last six years, Obama whatever he'd wanted to do, was not allowed to do it. It'll be fascinating to see whether uh, the man who's hijacked the Republican Party will have House members within uh, the Republican side who are prepared to allow him to borrow or to have tax breaks. That's another great Keynesian thing, just cut tax. But but what we're going to end up with is an enormous deficit. Whichever way you do it, you'll end up with an enormous deficit. And you can't simultaneously have an infrastructure program of a trillion dollars and bring down the deficit. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. Britain found that and the result was that they drove uh, the economy 
uh, into recession, I think, three times in four years. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's not, not a responsible way to govern a country, I would say. One final question on that. Keynes uh, argued that much of his economic thinking came from his desire to avoid the emergence of a much more extremist form of mm. government and society. Um, mm. And Hayek obviously uh, you know, spent his life fearing creeping totalitarianism, authoritarianism. Mm. And Hayek also was very much against the law discriminating between different categories of people and companies. One of the big fears about uh, soon-to-be President Trump uh, is that he'll combine something like an infrastructure package at a time when the economy is now finally near the point where it has full employment, maybe, but that he also will uh, essentially engage in quite a lot of horse trading with the private sector. Uh, I suspect that both Keynes and Hayek would have found this quite abominable, inappropriate, given, again, all the time you spent uh, inside their heads. Uh, what do you think they would have they would have uh, thought about um, the oncoming uh, Trump reign, so to speak? Yeah, I think they would have been appalled by the uh, divisiveness of it. They were both uh, totally uh, colorblind, race blind. Hayek, of course, was even more radical. He thought there should be no national borders at all. So, in a way, we shouldn't be too surprised when people who look after an, a nation. Uh, didn't go all the way down the road with Hayek because he actually he was into ab abolishing nations and allowing corporations to run the world, which is an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, of course, Hayek would have been appalled about uh, a, a trillion dollar uh, stimulus because he would imagine that uh, a lot of money would be wasted and it would be there will be boondoggles, there will be bridges to nowhere, there would be – actually, there are some wonder, rather wonderful New Deal boondoggles like Route 1 that goes you know, all the way down the west coast of the United States. I'm very glad they boondoggled that because <laughs> it's been a great joy to a lot of people ever since. But economically valuable? Not one bit. Uh, but uh, interesting. Uh, so, yes, I think that uh, both of them, by the way, would be appalled at the lack of intellectualism of Donald Trump. I don't think there's any doubt that he's uh, much brighter than his words suggest. But at the same time, both of them respected, above all, high intellectual debate and uh, and knowledge. Uh, in fact, Hayek wrote a whole book about how knowledge was the key to understanding exactly how the world worked, who had knowledge and who didn't have knowledge. And I think that... Uh, their hearts would sink. I suppose uh, today there, there are some Keynesians and there are some Democrats, by the way, who are very happy at the notion of a big stimulus. But let's see whether it turns out. Uh, it's a very sketchy thing right at the moment. And I can see that uh, Janet Yellen wants to put up interest rates, for instance, and that's a good thing. Put, everything should have a price, including money. And to have something without a price for so long, I think, is... Uh, slightly unnerving. It's an unreal situation until interest rates exist, proper interest exists. And also it's good for savers, you know. I mean, there are savers in the world, there are people who grow older and they need to save. And uh, to have a bank account where you can actually make some money is a very good idea. So interest rates should certainly go up. But at the same time, if a trillion dollars injected too soon. I mean, maybe this is just a one term. I, I'm, I'm not sure how what the time scale is, but inflation will certainly come about. Just in things like labor, sure, uh, we are at full employment. That's the worst time to start spending in all different sorts of directions when that labor 
uh, is now going to compete. It's going to ask for more money. Yes, I'll do the job, but give me more money. The hope is that a lot of people who've fallen out of the labor market in the last eight years, uh, well, since 2007, will be able to clamber on board. But by now, I suspect they're already quite comfortably with their own online business, uh, with their own black market business, all sorts of things that they're busily doing. Also, they've got out of the way of work. It's not so easy to take a 55-year-old and uh, start. uh, You can't turn a 55-year-old coal miner from West Virginia into a computer programmer in Palo Alto. It ain't going to happen. So it'll be very interesting to see. There will be distortions. Hayek would be pleased to know that there will be distortions. And people like you and me, well, you know, we're employed in order to track what these distortions are and to see when theory is put into practice, exactly which theories stand up and which uh, drive us further into the ruinous state that uh, many of us feel uh, the country has slipped into recently. Our guest has been Nicholas Wapshot. The book is Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics. Highly recommended. Uh, Nicholas, thanks so much for doing this. Great pleasure. Thank you. And that's the end of our chat with Nicholas. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one in the U.S. for our overseas listeners. Or you can send us an email at alphachat at ft.com. You can find me at Twitter. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. And please, please, please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find us. Finally, you can find show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Keynes and Hayek may have had insights in how to fight an economic depression, but the way I keep myself from falling into a personal depression is by reminding myself that I get to work with Amy Keene, the amazing producer and editor of this podcast. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.